we have one verse that we will look at today. That is verse 24. As we build the context, let me read from verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. <coughs> show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You, believing, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. <clears throat> you see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Tremendous section. I don't do New Year's resolutions or New Year's resolution sermons. I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God, and you may be a person that do New Year's resolutions, and all that I am going to say is applicable to your New Year's resolution, even though this is not a NYR sermon. <coughs> This morning I have one point, it is this. A believer's work will justify their faith. I'm going to qualify that. The sermon title is even more shocking. Justification by works. You may be wondering what on earth, where did I end up? This is not a Catholic church, so hold on. I will explain that. Unfortunately, modern evangelicalism has the ever-increasing problem of easy believism. That is, all you need in the Christian walk is to believe. All you need is to say, I have faith and you are fine. You don't need to show any works. You don't need faithfulness. You don't need devotion. You don't even need to read the Bible. All you need to have is faith. Zane Hodges, a proponent, proponent of easy believism, says, his comment is on John chapter 4, and he says this, quote, It must be emphasized that there is no call here for surrender. So the woman in John chapter 4, as Jesus communicates with her about the fact that she's a sinner, about the fact that she has multiple men in her life, and she's not righteous, and he says, based on that, there is no call for sur surrender, submission, acknowledgement of Christ's lordship. Take note of that. Or anything else of this kind. A gift is being offered to one totally unworthy of God's favor. And to get it, the woman is required to make no spiritual commitment whatsoever. She doesn't have to devote to Jesus Christ. She's got nothing that is required of her other than just a mere belief. She is merely uh, invited to ask. I have no idea what it means there. It is precisely this impressive fact that distinguishes the true gospel from all its counterfeits, end quote. So what he's saying is that the true gospel is a gospel that makes no demand on people. The only thing it requires is your faith. The only thing it needs is your belief, and that is it. So even after salvation, all that is required <coughs> is that you believe. So faith with no repentance, faith with no surrender, faith with no submission to Christ as Lord, that is what Christianity has become in our day. 
No spiritual commitment whatsoever. We are comfortable worshippers of the true and holy God occasionally, conveniently. Understand the weight of what Zane Hodges is saying. All you need to be in a right relationship with God and all that matters throughout your Christian walk is initiation of faith, that initial faith. So regardless of how your life will look afterwards, all you need is that moment of faith. This kind of thinking permeates Christianity today. Unfortunately, there may be some of you sitting here that have not stepped into the church maybe four times last year, maybe twice last year. And you're thinking, well, that's okay. I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe that God is the creator. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. And you know what James would say? Well, good for you. You know what? The demons believe the same thing. So your faith is no different to a demon's faith. Actually, let me put it this way. Your faith is weaker than a demon's faith. Why? Because they respond. They shudder at the knowledge of who God is. Remember when Jesus was on earth? What did the demons do? Have you come to judge us? They feared who he was. And today, all we do is claim the name. And that is all that matters. James would not agree with this kind of faith. In this book, we have seen that if faith is not supported by tangible works of righteousness. If there is no work whatsoever, then in James' mind, there is no true saving faith. So this morning, I want to bring to your attention that works justify, but not in a way that you may be thinking. This comes from verse 24. If you read with me, Take note, the way that James words this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, That may be a bit of a problem, right? Because those of us in the Reformed circles, we believe in sola fide, which is faith alone. But James says the opposite. Listen to Galatians chapter 2. And verse 16. I'm going to read from verse 15. We, being the Jews, uh, ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith. In Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. (coughs) This is the contentious verse in James. It's known as the controversial verse, verse 24 of chapter 2. It seems that James is contradicting Paul. And if we believe that justification is used in the same way as Paul uses it, then yes, there is a problem. In fact, then the Bible is contradicting itself. I pointed out last time that this is not the case. So if you weren't here, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview. If you were here, it is just repetition for you, but it is good for your learning. The word justification, depending on the context, can mean a legal acquittal or, of guilt or, and condemnation or judgment from God. It's a legal act that God does and he declares one to be just, declares one to be righteous. And so therefore, the judgment of the sin no longer rests upon the person because the judgment has been moved to another, which is Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been moved to you. That is the legal act of justification, which God alone does. The works of the law can never do that. The other way that the word can be used is merely to say that the person vindicates himself. 
He justifies himself. In fact, we use it in the same way. Who could I pick on this morning? Wayne. I like to pick on Wayne. Sometimes we may say something like this. Wayne loves to justify himself. Now that is not true at all. Right? It's not true. (laughs) That is not the legal function. That is not the legal sense. But we understand that he loves to clear his name, right? Maybe I should use Shantan as an example. He loves to protect himself. That is not true of Shantan. He, he, takes, he takes criticism all the time. He loves to incorrectly warrant support by rational explanation. He loves to vindicate himself, right? That's the word justification. It can mean merely to protect oneself by means of rational argument. If we allow James to interpret James, we can accurately and correctly say that a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone without being heretics. But we have to explain what that means. Thus far, we've been looking at faith that works in this book. In our previous sermon, James highlighted the fact that Abraham is an example of faith that works Throughout the entire experience of his life, since the moment God called him, right up to the time where he almost sacrificed his son, he demonstrates faithful obedience to God. When God calls, he responds, and he does. Was he perfect in that? Not at all. By no means. But as a general rule, when you look back at Abraham's life, it demonstrated faithful obedience. We continue this morning, however, to look at what it means to be justified by works. It sounds wrong when I say it because uh, I, I firmly believe in Reformed theology and absolutely preach that with conviction. So for that to roll off my tongue sounds like a heresy. But we can be convinced that there is a means through which we can be justified by means of works. And I will explain what that that means in a moment. (coughs) In Pauline writings, justification is never by means of works. So just to be clear, he never advocates a person can be justified by means of his own works. It's never in his writings. But James does say that you can be justified by means of works. There is no contradiction here. In fact, one author says this. There is, quote, a deliberate contradiction of Paul in James's words, end quote. No, absolutely not. Sorry, but that is just plain ignorance. For a pastor to say that in the pulpit is just absolutely ignorant. It is perfectly reconcilable, and I will allow James to reconcile his own words, not with Paul, but with the understanding of what theology says about justification. I don't need to change the meaning of his words because the meaning is resident in the text. We merely have to understand what James is saying. Now take note at how James approaches this in the beginning of verse 24 you see that a person is justified by works paused there. This is not evident in English, but the, the words you see appears twice. You saw, you saw that, right, in verse 22? You see, and now in verse 24, you see. What is not clear in the English translation is that you see in verse 22 is actually singular. And you see in verse 24 is plural. So that is more than one person. So let me put that in context. You see in verse 22 speaks about the opponent that he has just mentioned in verse 18. But someone (coughs) will say, you have faith and I have works. So throughout the section, right up to verse 22, he speaks to that opponent. Okay, so you believe that you have works, which is the works of the law, the, the system that he is holding to. And James says, let's take away that works. What do you have? You've got no faith. You you have nothing. So to that person, he says, you see that faith, based on what we see in Abraham, faith was active along with his works. Now, the word you see in, in verse 22 has to do with perception. 
understanding and not naturally the seeing with the eyes. Now, there are occasions, there's one author that actually uses it that way. It is 1 John, where he uses this word to speak of seeing with the eyes. That is unusual. Normally, it is used with perception or understanding. So he's not saying that you can see Abraham, right? Because you can't. Abraham's dead. His bones is, is bones. He's saying that you can understand, based on the example of Abraham, that faith was active along with his works. So not you can physically see Abraham, but you can understand, based on the illustration, that faith was active along with his works. <clears throat> James is saying to the opponent, you can perceive or understand instead of seeing with your eyes that Abram was justified by means of his works. Not in the salvific sense, but in the vindication sense. Now, in verse 24, there's a change. He says, you, plural, who's he talking to? All of those who are meeting in the synagogue. All of you see, you all, as... Um, friend of mine says, all y'all, that, that's southern, all y'all. Um, so all of you can see, in English, uh, the older translations used to have he, Y-E. I love that. We should have the plural you in our Bibles again. So if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you can write ye above you in verse 24. So you all see with your eyes. Here's the significance. You all can see physically with your eyes that a person is justified by works. Hold on to that thought. So it should become clear in a moment's time. James is not saying that you can understand that a person is justified. He willingly changes from perceiving or understanding based on the illustration of, uh, of Abraham that you, you, can, you can figure it out. Yeah, his faith was working with his works. But then he goes on and says, no, you can actually see a person is justified by means of his works. You can see with the faculty of your eye. You can visibly see it. I hope it's becoming clear. Jesus uses words of uh, a person that looks at a woman with lust. That's with the eyes. Or when he quotes Isaiah where he says, um, seeing they do not see, that is with the faculty of the eyes. Seeing they do not understand or they do not actually see what is uh, truly happening. The object of this seeing is always a thing or an object, uh, a thing or a person. So James willingly changes that simple word see to mean that you can physically, literally, visibly see it. You as a congregation can witness a person is justified by works. Starting to make sense now? And not faith alone. In other words, it is pretty obvious, people. It is pretty evident. You can't miss it. If true faith is, is, is present, what will all also be present? Justification by works. You will see it. That's the point that James is making. The, the group in the synagogue He's saying, you will be able to see justification at work by means of works. This is the opposite of easy believism. James is saying, where true faith is, there the community of faith can witness that faith. Where true saving faith is present, the community of faith, all y'all, will be able to see you are truly saved. What's the context? What does living faith look like? That is what James is expressing. Throughout this section, James has concluded that faith must have visible works. You can't miss it. In order for it to be authentic, there has to be a demonstration of living faith. When a baby is born, what do we expect to hear? Crying a lot of um, moms that know that very much so if there's no crying there's a problem yes if a child of God does not, uh, does not have the scream of faith 
He's probably not alive. Or she's probably not alive. I'm not saying that you have to be a mona or baby. I'm saying that there has to be a sign of life. What does James point to in this book as signs of life? If a poor brother or a poor sister walks into the church and what do you do? Oh, I, I, I hope that the Lord takes care of you, brother or sister. You pronounce his spirit as a blessing and James says that is all that you do. There is a problem with your faith. That faith is suspect. If all you can do is make a claim of belief and never demonstrate that belief, you have a problem. That faith is suspect. If all you can do is say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that God is a triune God. I believe the doctrines that you, believe, you teach in this church. If that, that is all that you have to say about your faith, then your faith is suspect. Why? Because James says, that faith must demonstrate itself. So when he says you see in verse 24, he's literally saying that you can witness with your eyes. Put that in the text. You can see with your eyes that a person is justified by works. I think that makes absolute clear sense to me. You can see him live out his faith. You can witness the demonstration of her faith. You can bear testimony to the fact that she or he is saved. It will be evident is what James is saying. When we read it, we are saying, probably in our minds, you see that a person is, is, is using it as a transitional statement. No. He's calling us to physically see the fact that a person is saved. Because that's the point that he's making. Justification, or better even, vindication is made by means of, of works. It is pretty evident, he's saying. You cannot hide it. Now there's, there's a huge debate, a theological debate on verse 24 because James uses this word justification. In this context, it means vindicate. So James is saying that a person can vindicate his faith by means of works. That is what he means. You will demonstrate your faith by means of your works. He's not saying that you will be saved by means of your works. No, but you will demonstrate by means of your works that you are saved. I think it's pretty evident when you see it through the eyes of James that there is no conflict here. There is no problem. But the problem occurs... When we read James through the eyes of Paul, let me say it this way. James is not Pauline in his writing, nor is Paul, Paul Jacobin in his writing. That may shock some of you. What on earth is Jacobin? You'll get it eventually. Go look up in an Afrikaans Bible what the book of James is called. Both of them are saying not the same thing. I don't like double negatives, right? But I want to make this point. They are saying different things. It's not like some people are saying it's, a, it's a two sides of the same coin because that would be justification and what? What's the other side? Well, justification is probably righteousness or justification because it has to do with salvation. It can't be salvation. Paul, James is not talking about salvation. What he's talking about is the demonstration of salvation. Paul deals with justification by faith before God, but James deals with vindication. Well, let me put it this way, justification by man before man. That's why he chose to change the word see. So let me prove from two internal proofs or uh, points that James does not have the legal sense in mind and that what he means by justification by works here is absolutely clear from the text. Now I'm going to use some grammar and it's going to be very easy. There's only two words that I'm going to use in this grammatical explanation and it should be understandable even if you're not a grammar fundi. So the first point of evidence is the grammatical tense of justification. So don't get confused by <laughs> the word grammar. I'm going to just mention one thing for now. The tense of the verb 
justification is present. Now, you should know what that means, right? You can understand present tense. It's now. now there, there's a bit of nuance to it, and I'll explain, to the, uh, explain that in a moment. What is the opposite of a present tense? Past tense. That's the only two terms I'm going to explain in this grammatical argument. So James is using the present tense in the word justification in verse 24. You see that a person is justified. You can even hear it in the translation. The meaning of the present tense and the nuance that I'm speaking about here is the focus is on the development of the action as it is taking place. It's a process that is not done, but ongoing. It's not complete, but ongoing. This is not a past action. That is the second part of a, the grammatical argument. It is not a past action, but a present action. It happens to the believer and has not happened to the believer as a completed event. So you are justified would be past, but you are being justified is present. James is not indicating that this justification is done. So again, don't think salvation, think vindication. But rather, this form of the, the use of this word justification is taking place on a regular basis, present tense. Further, in this grammatical argument, it is attributed to you. This is not a declaration by God, but this relates to how people view you. Is this starting to make sense? You can see that a person is as an ongoing practice vindicated, justified by his works. Now it is really interesting that some scholars try to make sense of the present use of justification because they're thinking Pauline. And here are some of the things that I found it funny. So please forgive me. Some say God presently views us as being justified presently. Hang on, you just use justified as a past tense. <laughs> no, you don't have to change the meaning of the present tense. It perfectly makes sense in the present. Where is God inferred in this verse or in this section? Not at all. That makes no sense whatsoever. The other one that I found very interesting is the, the present tense means that this is God's standing practice. This is always what God does. Hang on. Listen to the text. You see that a person is, in the present tense, justified by works. It's the person who's justifying himself, right? This is not God justifying the individual. So again, that makes no sense. Why do they try to change the meaning of the tense? Because they have to fit it in what Paul says. So with Bible study, when it comes to words, what you have to do is not just look at the word in the total use of its theology, but look at the word as how the author chooses to use it. That's not what James is saying. He's not saying that God views us as justified, but rather he's saying that we are regularly justified by what we do. This is not the legal declaration. Why? Because the legal declaration of justification, the legal act that God does, is a once-off act that can never be repeated. And it is done by God alone. But James says, a man is justified by his works. So let me show you uh, from another passage how this works. In Romans chapter 8, you should know this verse. <coughs> Let me highlight the past action of justification from a Pauline perspective. Roman eight, Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, past, also he also called. And those whom he also called, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is in contrast or in in contradistinction to an ongoing act. So God does this as a completed act, never to be repeated. That's what he's saying. If God justifies, you are forever justified. Look at Galatians chapter 2. I found this interesting as I was studying 
justification um, in verse 16. <coughs> Look at the, f the, there's two uses of justification. The first one is present and the second one is past. I'm going to read it to you. Yet we know that a person is not presently as an ongoing reality justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that, so we also have believed as a past action in Christ Jesus in order to be once as a completed action justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Interesting. So Paul says there is no way that you can as an ongoing reality justify yourself. But by faith, you can be justified when God declares you just, when he declares you righteous. That's a completed act. So even Paul makes a distinction between the ongoing activity of man that tries to justify himself versus the once of act. So James uses in the same tense, but not in the same sense. Does that make sense? So in, in Galatians chapter 2, the first tense that he uses is present. So James uses it in that tense, but not in that sense. So Paul deals with justification that leads to salvation, or that is salvation. James deals with justification that leads or is vindication. Justification by God, by faith in Christ, is a completed act. That's past, can never be repeated. But that's not what James has in view. <clears throat> what James has in view is justification done by men before men. There's a very simple way of identifying um, the difference between justification as it relates to uh, an ongoing vindication um, versus the legal transaction. In the legal transaction, God is always the actor. God is always the one that declares us just. In the fact that we justify ourselves, it is us doing the work. One is salvation, one is sanctification, not the same thing. There are many commentators who insist that James is talking about the same thing that Paul is talking about. Salvation, which is not possible. If that is the case, we have a problem. If James is talking about salvation, justification in terms of our standing before God, then works is necessary for salvation, which means the Catholic Church is right. If James is using justification in the salvific sense, but he's not. James completely obliterates this view by the ongoing present tense, he's saying that you can, as a habit, as a normal practice, validate your faith by what you do. You can justify your faith by your action. Contextually, what this means then is when they see, then you are justified. Let me put it in the text. You see that a person is justified. When is he justified? When you see his works. You can see that a person is justified by his works and not by faith. So justification relates to what they see and when they see it. Then your claim to faith is justified. That's what he is saying. Justification by man, before man, and not before God. That is what is in view. So justification in verse 24, I should say vindication in verse 24, in James's mind is an ongoing reality. So what is he saying? It is not enough to claim that you have faith. And you never demonstrate that faith before the community of God's people. There you are, you as a plural community can see when a person is justified by his works, when he vindicates the claim to faith. Which means that your Christian life is not your Christian life. It's a communal life. That there are eyes looking at how you walk and how you live. 
Whenever you see fruits of saving faith, then that faith is being justified, not in the legal sense, but in the vindication sense. In other words, true and saving faith must demonstrate itself in observable, observable deeds and acts. Without it, a community of believers will not be able to verify if you are a believer or not. Justification by works in James's point of view is that works vindicate the faith of the believer. Clear? I want to be clear on this. Does not bring faith to save. It does not lead us to salvation, but demonstrates that we are already saved. This reality will be further explained when we get to Rahab. Um, it's actually Raab, but um, some people don't like me pronouncing words in English um, that is slightly different in, in Greek or Hebrew. So I will just pronounce it as you see it in, in your English text. So Rahab is an illustration, a visual, visual illustration of what it means to put faith to works. <coughs> we'll get to that next week. So the first internal proof is the tense of the verb justification. Second internal proof is the condemnation of faith alone. So does James not believe in sola fide? No, he doesn't in the way that we may think he does. 24 again. You see that a person as an ongoing reality is vindicated by his works. His faith is vindicated by his or by works and not by faith alone. So what is he talking about? Now some struggle over this because we are so um, influenced in our thinking with regards to reform theology or reformation uh, theology, which I am absolutely gung-ho about. But the reason we think that James is contradicting sola fide is because we think through the reformers and we think through Paul, but James is not doing that. He's combating the incorrect view of faith, a faulty view of faith, an inactive faith. And he's saying that that faith, which is inactive, which is not working, that faith is not justified. That faith is not saved. And so he says you cannot merely claim to believe in Christ, cannot merely claim to believe in God and think that that is all that matters. James is saying that if your faith is all that you have to bank the entirety of your Christian walk upon, if all that you're saying is that, well, look, 20 years ago I believed, five years ago I believed, a year ago I believed, and there's nothing to show for that, you have a problem. In the context of this book, though, Especially in chapter 2, what James is after is a faith that does not submit to Christ as Lord. How do I know that? Go to chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> He's already identified who Jesus is in chapter 1. Take note, verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the grammar there indicates that who God is is also who the Lord is. So he's saying that this one, I'm a slave of God and of my brother, his uterine brother, Jesus. But he calls him Lord from the get-go. And that theme, though it's not mentioned often, is part of the undercurrent in this book. Again, it appears in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord, it's not in our Lord, it's of our Lord. And that can mean one of two things. It's the faith that he possessed or the faith that he gives. I'll lean to the latter. I think it's a faith that comes from him that he gives to his people. So the faith of our Lord, the glory. And then he goes on to explain, we've looked at that, what it means to discriminate. James says, if you are not willing to submit to this Jesus as Lord, if you're not uh, uh, willing to have faith in him, then your faith is in trouble. In this context, in chapter 2, he demonstrates what it means to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. 
refusal to discriminate against God's people. That takes place on a number of levels. Not willing to help God's people. A refusal to defer to the rich on account of their social standing. Just because a person is well known, you defer to them. And he says, no, that's not what saving faith does. A refusal to submit to the law of liberty in contrast to the law that brings death and binding and condemnation. He says, no, you submit to him, the king's law. A refusal to obey the truth by doing the works of Christ. Be doers of the word, he says. That's the entirety of chapter 2. And I don't know if you caught this by now, but James is dealing with what is often called lordship salvation. In other words, if he's lord of your salvation, then he's lord of what? Your entire life. If he's savior, then he reigns over you as lord. What James is after is an outworking of saving faith. If you are truly saved, you will show that. So another clue that James as a, uh, is not speaking about the legal declaration in accordance with Pauline theology is that James condemns the idea that faith alone is required. Not to be saved, but to claim to know God. Saving faith must have the accompanying works. It is not enough to make an academic claim of possessing knowledge about the truth. It's not enough. If that truth never filters down to your hands and feet, then you have a problem. Unfortunately, many churches today and many saints in the churches today ignore the call for faithful obedience, persistent faith, or works in the church of Jesus Christ. Many banked on the fact that they made a profession many moons ago. Some believe that there will be a day when the spiritual lights will go on and they will be ushered into obedience. So until that happens, no, not, not for me. Until that happens, they're banking on an archaic profession that is as dead as their soul. Modern Christianity makes allowances for unfaithfulness, unfruitfulness, unresponsive faith, and uncaring Christians. That is what the church has become. We are all too happy to enjoy the worship, but just don't expect me to live for Jesus every single day. The danger of this reality is that many who flock to the church on occasion, many who, who, who think that they are doing God a favor by appearing, many of these people have nothing more than dead faith or nothing better than demonic faith. They are lost and they are comfortably worshiping the Lord on their own terms. You know that the Lord speaks about this? Turn to Matthew, chapter 13. Look at verse 5. I'm presuming you know the parable of the sower, so I'm not going to give you some background, but look at verse 5. It says, Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up and since they had no depth <coughs> but when the sun rose they were scorched and since they had no root they withered away look at Jesus' explanation in verse 20 as for what is sown on the rocky ground this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That should scare some of you. There's an immediate response. Yes, I want to be part of this church. Yes, I want to serve. Yes, I want to love the Lord and I want to love his people. But take note. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. They stay with us, they live with us, they walk with us, 
and then affliction hits. And then lockdown comes. And then what? Yeah, it's not my kind of Christianity. I'm faithful when it's convenient. You know what James calls this? Spurious faith. There is saving faith that endures and will continue to endure. But there is spurious faith that will take root for a little while and, 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 and show some fruit and show some seed and speak the Christianese and then what? It is gone. James wants his readers to recognize that words without action is as good as a decomposing corpse. It's good for nothing. Now, you can bury a corpse in your backyard. Please don't do that. I will report you. But it's not going to talk to you. If it does, you have a bigger problem. James reveals that there is dead faith, and then there is dedicated faith. There is no in-between. You can't conveniently worship the Lord when you want to. You worship the Lord when it's hard, and you worship the Lord when it's easy. But you don't choose when it's your time you want to show up and worship the Lord. I hope that this year is very different to last year. I hope that God shakes you in your boots because if nothing moves you, then there's something wrong with your faith. If you are entering this year the same way as you lived last year, you should have deep concern about your relationship with God. This is what James is calling us to. He's not saying do more. He's saying examine your faith. You're either alive and living for the Lord or you are dead and living for yourself. There is no middle ground. There are no other alternatives. And I pray for you. I pray for you every time I go through this section. I pray for you guys. Because life is easy now. It's comfortable. And so, besides the heat, I'm sweating underneath this jacket. Besides that little bit of uncomfortableness, the minute affliction comes, will you stand your ground? James highlights empty profession in his book. It's not a test. He's not saying, well, test to see if you're in the faith. He's saying, no, this is the reality. No works, no faithfulness. Guess what? You're not a believer. It is that simple. That's empty profession. When faith is not seen, then that faith is not justified. In both senses. Vindication and in the legal declaration of being just before God. A person will not be vindicated before people by faith alone. I cannot see your faith. Your brother and sister cannot see your faith if all you have to do is claim your faith. If that's all that you have... We cannot verify if you are a believer. James says, you can see with your eyes a person is justified by means of their works. Greek scholar Richard Lenski says this, quote, True gospel works are the native and the necessary product of faith. This faith, which saves before it ever does a single work, saves by embracing Christ and reveals itself by producing love and works of love, which, wherever they appear, reveal that real saving faith is present. End quote. Absolutely. This is exactly what James is saying. Saving faith will be present in wise acts of righteousness. When there are no signs of life, there are no signs of life. The Lord Jesus died for sinners such as you, as I, you and I. Not so that we may just have a theoretical knowledge of Jesus Christ, but that you may know him in the fellowship of his suffering. That is hard. That you may also know him in the power of his resurrection, yes, but also that you may know him in the new life that he gave the new life that he alone can impart. I pray for you that you would be saved if you are not. I pray that the Lord would grant uh, 
a burden over your heart if you're not actively serving God's people and him who is Lord. Apart from a living demonstration of faith, you are nothing more than a dead corpse worshipping a true God. Apart from life that lives what it claims, you are coming to worship the true God, but falsely. Let's pray. Father, this is a tremendous reality. Christ is not only our Savior, but he is our Lord. And we are thankful to you for this revelation in the, the word, in your truth. The burden that it places on us, Lord, is that these sinful hearts of ours desire to be faithful to ourselves and not always to you. Forgive us. How we need your guiding hand and how we need your graciousness, Lord. Father, there are those here who are, who are not saved. I pray that you would make them uncomfortable, whether they lie on their beds or whether they are at work, cause their souls to be uneasy about their state before you. Cause them to call out in fear and repentance before you. Disturb them to repentance. Those who have a convenient faith, who worship you on their own terms, Lord, I pray that you would bring a level of conviction that they've never had before. Change their hearts. Convince them of where they are truly standing before you and save them. Pray for those who are believers and are living a rebellious life, who are indulging in sin and reveling in it. Father, break their hearts before you that they may repent of their sin and walk in faithfulness before you. Those believers who are unwilling to be faithful, cause repentance that they may walk faithfully before you. Forgive us, Lord. Save us, Lord. Revive us, Lord. Restore us, Lord. And sustain us, Lord. You alone can do this. I pray that this year would be dramatically different to every year that we've lived before. Father, help us to live for your glory as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.